Hey, good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good Tuesday morning. We're a little over three weeks away from the start of the NFL season and let the overreactions begin after the first week of the preseason. We'll talk about that. The Major League Baseball did the best thing it's done probably in 15, 20 years last week. We'll certainly talk about Field of Dreams, Yankees rolling. We're going to talk about that. and There's a very unanswered question in Western New York these days, and I'll finish the show with that. But I want to start with the preseason, and like everyone else, I was intrigued to see how the Bills would look against the Lions. And preseason football, first off, it is extremely vanilla. No defensive coordinator, no head coach is going to set up to put out a scheme that they want anyone to be able to see. So when they're breaking down film, they're going to have an advantage. It's the most vanilla, basic defense that you will face all year. It is vanilla offense. It's just very basic. It's designed to get guys opportunities to make plays. It's designed to get guys opportunities to put something on film to evaluate them. Keep everyone healthy, move on, get ready for the season. This coming week, the Bills will play the Bears. That's the one game that I would expect to see some Josh Allen and some starters, maybe a little bit in the third preseason game. It's different now with only three. It used to be the first preseason game, you may see some starters. Second preseason game, You see the starters for about a quarter, almost a half. Third preseason game to get ready. You'd see the starters begin the third quarter just so they could get the repetition of going forward and getting things, getting used to things as they are in a real NFL game setting. And then week four, it was guys trying to make the roster. So it's different now, and we don't really have the lay of the land because it's the first year they've done a three-week preseason. Remember, last year there was no preseason. So this is different. The one thing that I took away that I really liked from the Bills opener, and because this isn't different preseason, regular season, anytime. And I hate kickers, but Tyler Bass was three for three, including the game-winning field goal. That's important. That's confidence building. That's repetition. The one thing I didn't like is there was one field goal attempt that they took too much time getting set and McDermott had to waste the timeout. Can't happen. Those are the things that the preseason is for, to make sure you get those bugs worked out. So week one, you're out there. If there's a field goal attempt, guys are on there. No need to worry about the clock. Get it done. So interesting that Tyler Bass looked good, and that, that was my... First takeaway. Other players who look good. I thought Gregory Rousseau showed up and showed something. Early on, he got a sack, and, and that sack, in my opinion, was much more about Harrison Phillips getting inside pressure. But what I liked about the sack by Rousseau is he went up against Pene Suell. And if you remember going up the draft, Suell was one of those guys that people were calling a franchise-changing tackle. And the Lions were happy to have grabbed him. And frankly, I think he'll be a very good player. But Rousseau 
went out and beat him and, and gave him trouble. And I think there's something there with Gregory Rousseau. I don't know how long it'll take to come out. I don't know if he'll be a contributor this year. But the length is unteachable. The speed is natural. Can he become a pass rusher? That That's Gregory Rousseau's career right there. Can he become that guy that when the Bills defense is out there in a pass rush situation, the offense has to know where Gregory Rousseau is and not let him be the guy to wreck them. That's the key to Gregory Rousseau long-term with the Buffalo Bills. Early blush looked good. I mentioned Harrison Phillips. I thought he looked good coming back. And, And Harrison Phillips could be a key player on this team. The defensive tackle position is going to be a very good competition going forward. Star Latulule is back. I talked about that last week. The importance of Star with Ed Oliver next to him. Behind them, three guys, Justin Zimmer, the aforementioned Harrison Phillips, and then there's Vernon Butler, who's been dealing with a little bit of an injury. The hope, I would think, for Sean McDermott Brandon Bean is that Phillips and Zimmer become the second set of D tackles for this reason. Vernon Butler still, even after the pay cut, makes a pretty good salary. If the Bills were to move on from Butler, it would free up some salary cap space for them. So it's an interesting thing to watch, but I liked what I saw out of Harrison Phillips. I mentioned Rousseau, the other guy I got to mention in the same vein and, and potentially a huge contributor this year with the defensive end position, I think being in flux with Jerry Hughes' age and Mario Addison being an okay defensive end, is A.J. Appenenza, and he looked good on set on set Friday night. He looked quick, and, and he looked a little bit bigger to me. It, we'll see how it plays out. But between Rousseau and Epinenza, and I'll throw a boogie Basham who didn't show me much in the first preseason game, if you find something from one of those guys, a consistent, hard-to-block player in pass rush situations, I think the Bills will have something. Devin Singletary came out running the ball very well, scored a touchdown on on a pass. Singletary, forty yards on forty two yards on eight carries, but it, the quickness. He looked very strong. I, I think it's preseason game management, but Brian Dable seemed very willing to run the football. Let's hope as the season goes on. He's willing to do that as well because a lot of times when you have a shiny toy like Josh Allen and like the pass game, you may be a little less likely to use your second best pitch, and that certainly is the running game. That's going to be a very important thing. Davis Webb, the future offensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills, that's just an opinion. But Davis Webb is a guy who understands the offense greatly. He is a huge asset in the quarterback room. Look, quarterback room is set pretty much, in my opinion. Josh is going to be the starter. There's no doubt of that. People were upset that Trubisky only threw two passes. you got to keep Mitch Trubisky healthy for the same reason you got to keep Josh Allen healthy. If Allen gets hurt, Trubisky gives this team a chance to win. He is a solid 
quarterback, and I mean solid NFL starting quarterback, let alone a backup quarterback. He He's going to get opportunities in the preseason, but the most important thing about Mitch Trubisky is to be healthy should anything happen to Josh Allen. But the last two guys in the quarterback room, Jake Fromm and Davis Webb, each bring different things. Fromm brings some upside. He came out of Georgia, and you thought maybe the Bills got a steal. Well, Friday night was his first live action that he's seen. Remember, with no preseason last year and strange settings that it was, Fromm was away from the team most of the time. He was kind of in a COVID protocol to keep him healthy in case the other quarterbacks ended up getting COVID. Well, Davis Webb, being a part of that quarterback room, has a phenomenal understanding of the offense. He brings knowledge to that room. And he looked pretty good. He looked serviceable. He's a, a kid out of Cal. Was uh, The Giants had big hope for Davis Webb. It didn't pan out. But in my opinion, the Bills are best served with a quarterback room that includes Davis Webb going forward. One thing I was really happy to see, and it may be very short-lived, it was having Tommy Sweeney back on the field. The former seventh-round pick, Sweeney, when he played two years ago, looked like a guy who could develop into a solid NFL tight end. And then, of course, last year, the injury and then the myocarditis from covid didn't get on the field. Well, he had a couple catches, and it looked good seeing him out there. Of course, now he's in a walking boot. No real update on his status. But we'll see where it goes. I, I do think Tommy Sweeney could be a key part of this team because, as I've said repeatedly on this podcast, there is not any depth, in my opinion, at the tight end position. And I don't think there's it's front-loaded with Dawson Knox. I think he's a very average NFL player. If he's your second or third tight end, you probably have a pretty good tight end room. But as your lead tight end, I think you're lacking something there. Guys who didn't help themselves. I mentioned Jake Fromm. He, he struggled a little bit. And again, I, I, think, I think the handwriting's on the wall for Fromm, and it has maybe more to do with the quarterback room. Now, Will the Bills bring him back as a practice squad player? I would think they would should they move on from him. I think that would be something they would like to see him continue to develop. I don't know if they'll get the opportunity, but I would guess that. The backup offensive lineman struggled mightily. And, you know, we're we're talking about guys who are likely not going to be factors on the roster this year anyway. But you always want to have depth, and you always want to have a guy, whether it be a practice squad player or a third swing tackle, whatever the case may be, somebody at the bottom of the 53 that, if needed, can be elevated and can get out there and and at least hold their own and didn't see a whole lot of that from the bottom of the roster when it comes to the offensive line. Now, the Bills will play on Saturday against the Bears. One o'clock start, and I think that's – Somewhat important because the Bills play a lot of 1 o'clock games this year. And I think this way Sean McDermott can get the team in game mode. Go through everything as if it's a normal Sunday 1 o'clock kickoff. Let everyone kind of get used to that. You run through. It's it's a true dress rehearsal. 
I would expect, again, the starters to get some time. They got nothing last week. But this I, this week, I think you'll see a little bit more anyway. Or if seeing anything, you'll see a little bit more. couple series at the most, but keeping guys healthy is the biggest concern. Speaking of keeping guys healthy, there's an injury at Bills Camp that has me concerned. And I was thinking about it today. And if you think about the most important pieces of the puzzle for the Buffalo Bills for the 2021 season. Josh Allen playing to the level similar to what he played at last year, certainly an incredibly important piece. But behind Josh Allen is Mitch Trubisky, who is, I think, more than capable of, if necessary, leading this team to a playoff. Now, can he win a championship? I don't think he can. Can Josh? Maybe. So, it's very important to keep Allen healthy. I don't think that's the biggest piece. You look around the rest of the roster, there's there's key guys. Tredavious White comes to mind. He's a very key part of the puzzle. But I don't think there's a more important piece of this puzzle than Stefan Diggs. Diggs has now missed the last five practices. He's got a knee injury. Sean McDermott, when asked about it yesterday, said he didn't expect it to linger into the regular season. Not exactly a an answer that's giving you relief. To me, that's a very open-ended answer to a question that really nobody wants to hear the bad answer to. I, look, it may be nothing. It may be they're just being overly cautious. It may be tendinitis. It may be something where he goes through the season where he doesn't practice much, but on game day gets out there and still looks like Stefan Diggs. But the drop-off from Diggs to everybody else, and the Bills have good depth at the wide receiver position with Cole Beasley, Emmanuel Sanders, Gabriel Davis. they Jake Kumaro, who's this year's favorite of the fans every year, the fans log on, lock on to a wide receiver and decide that this guy's going to make the team and be awesome. He's this year's Duke Williams. Aaron Rodgers loved the guy. Maybe there's something there, but when you look at Stefan Diggs, there's a lot of reasons Josh Allen made the jump he had last year. I don't think there's a bigger reason than Stefan Diggs going to get him giving up a first-round pick to get him, changed the Bills' season and changed their future. And having him on the field at 100% week one is as important as any other position. I think more important because I think there's a bigger fall-off. Again, you look at around the roster, find me a position where there's a bigger drop-off from one to two than Stefan Diggs to whoever would replace him on the roster. I actually think it's a bigger drop off than it is from Josh Allen to Mitchell Trubisky. That's how big of a concern I have about Stefan Diggs. So we'll see how that goes. But again, less than a positive answer by Sean McDermott yesterday. The NFL network is coming out with their top 100 list and they every couple of days release another 10. We're up to the 40, we're, we're 41 through 100 at this point. The top 40 yet to be announced. So far, two bills have been announced. Number 96 was Cole Beasley. 
his debut into the NFL Top 100. And number 95 was Tredavious White. Beasley surprised me. I wouldn't have thought he would have ended up on this list, but he's a very good player, and I'm happy for Cole Beasley that he's getting the recognition he deserved. I'm also happy that Cole Beasley's biggest uh, conversation point in training camp now has been that he's on the top 100 list and not something about Twitter that has gone viral because of his stance on vaccinations. It's that subject has seemingly simmered down. So good for Beasley. Tredavious White at 95, I was very surprised, not that he was on the list, that he was that low. I think Tredavious White is an excellent cornerback. I don't think he's got the reputation yet that, say, a guy like uh, Stephon Gilmore in New England has, who came in at number 48. I think they're comparable players. I think Gilmore's a really good player. I think Trey White is a really good player. I think what hurts Tredavious White is, in some ways, the Bills don't have a great number two. We've talked a little bit about Levi Wallace and Dane Jackson battling. So teams don't go after Tredavious White. They go after other members of the secondary. So because of that, I think it hurts his opportunities to maybe be thought of as a true lockdown number one corner, but I think he is certainly that. With 40 more players to be put on this NFL Top 100 list, the question then becomes, which Bills players will likely be on there? Well, Josh Allen is certainly a lock to be on there. I think he will probably be in the top 10, potentially end up in the top five, which is a dramatic jump for a guy who last year wouldn't have made the top 200 list in the NFL. The other guy I expect to be on there is Stefan Diggs. Again, go back to my comments about Diggs. You'll know why I think he's there. There's not another player on there. The question I have is, is there a player who can make that jump and get on there? Maybe Tremaine Edmonds. Maybe Ed Oliver. Again, the onus is on these guys to prove their worth as first-round draft picks to be somebody who gets in a position to get a second contract with the team at this point. I know Edmonds' fifth-year option is picked up. I don't think he's somebody who signs a long-term deal after that fifth-year option with the Bills. I just don't think he's set himself apart. He's got two years to prove me wrong on that. I hope he does. At Oliver, at this point, I wouldn't think that the Bills would be in a position to pick up his fifth-year option. He has not been... A guy who stands out. And if you're going to pay big money to a defensive tackle, he better be a guy who stands out. We'll see this year with the return of Starla Tulele if that changes his fortune as well. So it's something to keep an eye on going forward for over the next couple of days when that top 100 list comes out and also down the road. This weekend was the debut of the five quarterbacks who were selected in the first round of the draft back in April. And it's funny because when you look at all the quarterbacks that were picked, this was a unique draft and everyone's trying to get their guy. And Trevor Lawrence is the highest rated quarterback to come out since Andrew Luck. So expectations are through the roof with this guy. How did he look? Looked like a rookie quarterback with great ability. Made some 
fantastic throws, held the ball too long, got sacked, got hit, got out of some things. Looked like a rookie quarterback on a bad team, and that's what I expect him to look like all year. It's just funny when you hear the pundits talk about and break down some of the great throws. Great throws shouldn't surprise us. Holding the ball too long shouldn't surprise us. The fact that the offensive line in Jacksonville isn't good shouldn't surprise us. Remember, just because Urban Meyer's there and just because you've got a number one overall pick who people expect to become a Hall of Fame quarterback in Trevor Lawrence, the returns aren't likely to be immediate. This is a team that needs to grow into its situation and Trevor Lawrence needs to grow into his situation as well. Zach Wilson of the Jets, a second overall pick. I talked last week how poor he has looked in practice. Well, I thought it was an important night on Saturday night. Six and nine, 63 yards. Did what he had to do. And in my opinion, it was a big performance for him. And I'm not going overboard with his performance. But it showed he's a competent NFL quarterback. And everyone in New York who overreacts to everything anyway can now just relax, take a breath, and let this kid develop. I don't know what Zach Wilson's going to turn out to be. I don't know if Sam Darnold in Carolina is playing as well as they say he is and maybe all of a sudden could find what he was supposed to be in New York. But Zach Wilson's the Jets quarterback now. It's time to let him develop and let him become a starting quarterback in the league. He hasn't looked apart through practice so far. However, he's got ability, and that's why he was a second overall pick. And I think if everyone just takes a breath, goes Aaron Rodgers and relax, I think he'll be okay. We'll see how good he can be, but I think he'll be okay. Third overall pick was Trey Lance of the 49ers. And Trey Lance was a kid who didn't play a whole lot. He played one game last year. Didn't have a ton of experience, comes from North Dakota State, which obviously isn't playing in the SEC. So there's so many questions about him. And Trey Lance, to me, reminds me of Josh Allen and Justin Herbert. Guys who came in big, strong, raw, physically gifted, it's going to take time. Saw some things, the 80-yard touchdown looked great, but the fumble the holding on to the ball, the bad throws, the bad mechanics, it's going to take time. Let's not overreact. And I know when I'm talking about NFL and rookie quarterbacks saying don't overreact, it goes against everything that we keep hearing. Remember, the media that covers the NFL 365 days a year needs content. So, of course, they're going to overreact. They're going to overanalyze everything. The 11th pick was Justin Fields, and the Bears quarterback – looked the part on Saturday. But I'm not ready to put him into Canton yet. I want to see a second preseason game before I give Justin Fields the automatic entry into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I'm being sarcastic because if you had read or seen the talk, look, the kid looked great, but he looked great last year at Ohio State. I don't know why it's a surprise that Justin Fields can throw the football and run the football. I don't know why it's a big surprise that he looked effective doing it for the Bears. Well, maybe it's because the Bears probably have, if you were to take every franchise and say who's their best quarterback in the history of their franchise, 
And then you rank those quarterbacks, 1 through 32. The best quarterback in the history of the Bears franchise is probably Jim McMahon. And he's probably the worst, best quarterback in franchise history, if that makes sense. The Bears have had terrible quarterbacks throughout their entire existence, except for for a minute in the mid-80s before Tim Harris slammed McMahon on his shoulder and ruined his career. McMahon looked like he was going to be a good, real good NFL quarterback. And yet, here we are 40 years later, and the Bears are still looking for a real good NFL quarterback. Trubisky wasn't the guy. Sexy Rexy Grossman wasn't the guy. Cade McCown of UCLA wasn't the guy. Think of all the bad quarterbacks. Eric Kramer. How many bad? How bad is the Bears' history at quarterback? In an NFC Championship game, Walter Payton played quarterback for the team. The greatest running back of the history of the game, in my opinion, played quarterback because the quarterbacks were so inept. In a playoff game, yeah, I'm happy that Justin Fields looks the part. Let's just slow down and not put him in Canton yet, please. Mac Jones, 15th overall pick to the New England Patriots, and people were wondering what this kid would look like. Is he going to be the starter? Is he better than Cam Newton? Well, he ran onto the field to a standing ovation in New England, so the Patriot fans are certainly behind him. But what was interesting was how he ran the offense, and he did exactly what he was supposed to do. The Patriots' offense was a run-heavy offense predicated with short passing attack, and and that's what was done by Mac Jones, and he did so efficiently. So it wasn't a overwhelming performance. It wasn't something that you look at and go, wow, that looked great. He did what Bill Belichick asks of his players to do. Do your job. Mac Jones did his job. I think he's going to be the starter probably early in the season, not week one, but probably by week four, I think Mac Jones becomes the starting quarterback in New England. Speaking of starting quarterbacks, good news. I've talked a lot about the Colts and how complete their roster is, but the injury to Carson Wentz and the lack of an experienced backup behind him is putting their season in, I think, very, very much in peril. Because without a quarterback who can complement the rest of that team, they've got a great offensive line. They've got a great running back with Jonathan Taylor. I, I think the defense is, is championship caliber. But without Carson Wentz there, I don't think they can get it done in a division that's getting tougher, especially with Tennessee taking that next step, I think, bringing in Julio Jones, they could be very good this year. The Colts intrigue me, but Carson Wentz, he looks like he may only miss one or two weeks. And maybe more importantly, Quentin Nelson may only miss one or two weeks at the most. Quentin Nelson saying he's going to be ready week one. He, he is probably the best offensive lineman in football, if not the best, one of the top three. So I think that's a huge development that both Wentz and Quentin Nelson are on pace to get back rather quickly to help that Colts team that I think could be a real live dark horse, if you will, in the AFC. Everyone's looking at the Bills and the Chiefs. you got to find the other teams, and I think the Colts are as 
one through 53, talented as any other team in the league. Speaking of the AFC South, we talk a ton of AFC South football on this podcast. You know, who doesn't want to talk about the Jaguars and Texans? But the strangest story continues to just go on as if there's nothing to see there. The Houston Texans and Deshaun Watson. Honestly, I don't know what's going on. Watson was practicing. He doesn't practice. He practices. He doesn't. I I don't know what's going on. And where is the NFL on what's going to go on with Deshaun Watson? I'm not a Texans fan in any stretch. I, I just have very little interest in the Texans. I find them to be somewhat of a boring team if, Deshaun Watson doesn't play. There's no reason to to get excited about watching the Texans game. If he does play, they're going to put up points because he's that good. But with everything going on with Deshaun Watson, where is the NFL with the discussion about what to do about this guy? I I really don't know what they're going to do. Are they just going to pretend that 22 women haven't accused this guy of sexual assault and they're going to run him out there? I really have a hard time understanding what the NFL is doing and how they can handle this. Strange. And and again, it continues just to go on, but nothing to see here. Just keep moving. Nothing to see whatsoever. Very bizarre. The Packers have an injury concern at their quarterback position. Not Aaron Rodgers, but Jordan Love. Rodgers, at his age, is liable to miss a game or two because of injury. Jordan Love needing all the reps he can get to be ready to take over, not only in case of injury this year, but after this year when he's likely to become the starting quarterback in Green Bay. Shoulder injury, they're bringing in quarterbacks to get through the preseason games. Any missed reps hurt Jordan Love. A lot of missed reps significantly hurt his progress, so something to keep an eye on there. And with the first episode of Hard Knocks being out, We saw that last week. Dak Prescott's injury remains a concern. And it remains a big concern. We saw it last year with the Cowboys. They were struggling with Dak because of turnovers and lack of defense and things like that. Well, the defense hasn't gotten a whole lot better. Just changing out the D coordinator should help. But I don't think it's going to immediately turn around the worst defense historically in the history of a franchise and all of a sudden make it a playoff defense. But what's interesting to me is not only Dak and his being shut down because of an injury to his shoulder. Remember last year, it was the perfect storm for the Cowboys offensively. Dak Prescott goes down. Tyron Smith, who's probably a Hall of Fame left tackle when it's all said and done, who's closer to the end than he is the beginning, still great, but he's going to only play 10 or 12 games at most per year. Right tackle Lyle Collins, who's an all-pro, he also missed the entire season. So you lose your two bookend tackles. You lost Travis Frederick before the season started. He retired. He was an all-pro center. Then Zach Martin goes out at guard, and you lose him. So four excellent offensive linemen are out, not easily replaced, and then you've got Andy Dalton trying to run an offense designed for Dak Prescott. Bad combination all the way around. This year, it's going to be interesting to see if the Cowboys can keep Lael Collins and Tyron Smith healthy. If the center position is finally moved on enough from Travis Frederick to be 
a competent situation there? And can Zach Martin stay healthy at right guard? He's getting a little longer in the tooth. And, and the craziest thing, my biggest takeaway from the first hard knocks was a conversation between Stephen Jones, Jerry's son, who's likely to be the man once Jerry passes on or goes on goes into retirement. I don't think he'll ever retire, but passes on likely. Stephen Jones will then be the guy calling the shots for the franchise. When Stephen Jones talking to Mike McCarthy, and they said how good Ezekiel Elliott looked, and the two of them having a conversation and saying how much better shape he is in this year than last year, how good he looks because he's in shape. And I can't tell you how much I'm disgusted by pro athletes who can't bother to get themselves in shape. Ezekiel Elliott's a a very good back. He's paid like a great back. He's a very good back who doesn't give a rat's ass enough about himself to keep himself in shape. How do you show up to camp thinking you're a great back and wanting to do great things and holding out the year before to get a big contract and you can't get yourself in shape? Now, I'm not going to give him credit for this year getting in shape. I'm going to bash him for last year not caring enough to be in shape. It's horrible. It is unprofessional. And because of that, he will never be viewed in my eyes as a great back. He's a good back. He can do a lot of things when he has that offensive line right and Dak's there. He's a key part of that that offense. But the fact he doesn't bother to keep in shape or show up in shape, that's not greatness. That's mediocrity. And shame on you, Ezekiel Elliott. I know he doesn't care what I think about him, but that's just awful. Major League Baseball. Rob Manfred did something right. Over a year in the making, it was supposed to be last year, but because of the pandemic, like many things, it was postponed a year. But last Sunday night was the Field of Dreams. I'm sorry, last Thursday night was the Field of Dreams game between the Yankees and the White Sox. Played in a cornfield in Iowa, adjacent to the set of the movie Field of Dreams, where Ray built it and they did come. This was an amazing night of baseball. You see Kevin Costner on the screen, bringing him back, having him being a big part of it, playing tribute to the movie, fantastic. You see the players when the introductions came and they walked out of the cornfield. I I just thought it was great. Everything about the pregame was phenomenal. The flyover with the vintage airplanes, the throwback uniforms. By the way, the Yankees should wear those uniforms on the road every day. They're fantastic. It just was a great night for baseball. And then the game began and things got even better. You know, Aaron Judge going yard twice and including one in the top of the ninth to give the Yankees a chance. Giancarlo Stanton giving them the lead. It was fantastic theater all the way around. And then Tim Anderson of the White Sox hitting the walk-off. And Tim Anderson is a kid who I think Major League Baseball needs to promote more. Look, for years, Major League Baseball has had a problem getting young African-American kids to buy into their game and to play their game. And there's a lot of reasons for it. In the inner city, there isn't a ton of opportunity. And Major League Baseball set up programs to help attract more minorities 
into the game. Obviously, there's a heavy Latin influence in baseball, but the African-American influence is down to some of the lowest numbers in the history of the game since Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. So it's something that needs to be more important or it needs to be remedied. It's very important to Major League Baseball, obviously. But Tim Anderson, a young African-American superstar, and this kid's a stud, and he does it with swagger. And you saw it with the walk-off home run. And if you're listening and you're a Yankee fan, you probably hated it. But if you watched what he did and the style and, and the swagger that he plays with, this is a kid to promote. This is a kid that I think can become the face of Major League Baseball that helps attract young African-American kids from the inner city to get back into a game that I love. I would love to see it become more popular in the inner city and create more opportunities for kids to play. It's just he is a great player who I think is under-promoted because of where he plays. And frankly, the White Sox are a really, really good team. You saw that this weekend when they battled the Yankees in that series. That's a potential playoff matchup with the White Sox and the Yankees, and I want to see Major League Baseball do all they can to use Tim Anderson to help promote the game because the kid is an absolute stud. And if you watch him, he's fun to watch play the game. So something to think about. Next year, they're going to redo the Field of Dreams. They're going to have the Cubs and Reds do it again next year. I, I don't know. Look, this is the first time. It was perfect in every way. I don't know that you can replicate that. Though, it built a lot of momentum. It was as highly of watched baseball game as there's been in decades during the regular season. So maybe people will tune in just because this was such a success. But it's always hard to replicate the perfect scenario. And this was in every way perfect from the the pregame, the field itself, the way it looked, the way it was, just a great, great night. And the biggest winner wasn't the White Sox. It was Major League Baseball. They did benefit greatly. Looking forward to seeing it next year. Again, I don't know that you can replicate how good it was this year, but, man, was it cool. And, oh, by the way, Field of Dreams, not the best baseball movie. You know, when when I hear people talk about the best baseball movie of all time, I hear them say The Natural or Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams was really good. The Natural had the stupidest Hollywood ending that ruined the entire movie to me. Yeah, he's going to blow up a light pole with the game-winning home run while he's bleeding. Give me a break. Ruin the whole movie. My favorite baseball movie of all time is Bull Durham. Fantastic movie based on the 71 Rochester Red Wings team, written by a member of that team. Just great in every way. Kevin Costner, again, fantastic. I thought Major League is as good of a baseball movie as you'll ever see. And my Dark Horse favorite movie. I haven't seen it in a while, but it was great. Eight Men Out. And if you've never seen Eight Men Out, check it out. It is a great baseball movie. So there's that. The Yankees have been on fire, and you know they struggle with this whole COVID thing. They got Garrett Cole back last night. 
and he looked like Garrett Cole, five and two-thirds, two hits, only allowed one run. Maybe the biggest thing that happened last night was the Joey Gallo effect. Gallo hits a two-run home run. The Yankees beat the Angels 2-1. to one. Maybe Gallo's pinstripe moment. He's had a few hits and a few key hits over the last couple weeks. He's going to strike out a lot. He's going to run into some. He's good outfielder. He is what he is. But last night was a big night. Getting Cole back is huge. The Yankees have been on fire. They've won 15 of their last 20, playing very good baseball in spite of losing guys to this COVID outbreak that they've had. They're starting to get healthy. They're starting to get guys back. And if you look at what they've got coming up, after doubleheader for the White, with the Red Sox today, they play the Sox again tomorrow night. Then they've got four against the Twins. So a chance now. They're only two games back of the Sox. If they win two or three, they go into that twin series, only a game behind the Sox, right on the edge of the wild card. But then, after those four games against the Twins, an extremely long road trip, and I think this is a make or break. You look at the time of the year it is, and you look at the teams that they play. Two at Atlanta, and the Braves are playing great baseball. Team that struggled out of the gate, they are just ripping the cover off it. Austin Riley at third base has been, they thought he was going to be a really good player. He wasn't, and all of a sudden he is. He's playing excellent. And then four at Oakland, the Yankees always seem to handle the A's well. The A's having another very good year. And then three more against the Angels in Anaheim. So that road trip, that nine-game roadie included with that West Coast element, I think makes or breaks the 21 season for this Yankees team. Speaking of makes or breaks, I talked about the Mets all year long, and they are broken. They are in the midst of a 13-day, 13-game stretch where they play the Dodgers and the Giants. The first four games of those 13, they are 0-4. They are now one game, or they are now a 500 baseball team going into tonight's game against the Giants. They need to figure things out quickly, but it's not going to happen. They don't have any timetable on Jacob deGrom. He is still trying to figure out what is wrong with his elbow. Nobody has given a diagnosis or a treatment that is going to set a timetable for his return. Francisco Lindor is working his way back off the IL, but he's not taking not close to getting a rehab start started. And with Javier Baez joining him there, the Mets' middle infield is far from what it should be. So it's it's a bad situation, getting worse every night. Can question some of Luis Ruas's decisions, especially last night when he used their best reliever for only one one batter. The next inning, he went to a guy who's been struggling. That guy gave up a pair of home runs that ended up being the difference in the game. But this Mets year is not going to be one that ends well, in my opinion. The last baseball note that I wanted to hit on is a guy who got his 2,000th hit last night, Joey Votto. Joey Votto is one of those guys that when you think about him, you're like, oh, yeah, he's a, he's had a really nice career. When guys get to 2,000 hits, you, you kind of take stock of their career and you kind of look at things and, you know, where are they and, what what's their all-time situation? 
So is Joey Votto a Hall of Famer? That's my question. And before I get to the answer to that, you look at how Joey Votto, the player, has evolved. He's become a home run hitter. He has always been a 25 to 30 home run guy. but And he's had 37 as a career high. But Votto this year has 26 home runs in only 90 games. He's missed a bunch of games because of injury. So the 90 home run, or the 26 home runs are really indicative of how he's evolved as a hitter. He's got a 952 OPS this year. Very strong. Batting average isn't great, but the on-base percentage with Joey Votto is always going to be. But you start looking at his career numbers. He's a career 303 hitter. He's got 321 career home runs, and in this modern day of baseball, the 321 home runs don't really stand out. But again, for much of his career, that wasn't what he was about. He was about a guy. He was a guy who was going to hit for a high average, run into a few here and there, hit you 25 to 30 home runs, drive in 100. But the career OPS of 937. Joey Votto's a Hall of Famer. And I'll throw one more element in. Having played his entire career with the Cincinnati Reds, we've forgotten about him in large part because the Reds haven't been a good team for much of Votto's career. But this is a guy, when it's all said and done, he's got two more years after this year on his contract at $25 million per, and then the team has an option for a third year, which would put him at his 40-year-old season. So three more years, potentially, of him being a Cincinnati Red, ends up somewhere around 2,500 hits, ends up somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 home runs, and that career OPS about 920 at, at the end of his career, Joey Votto certainly, in my opinion, will be a Hall of Famer if he stays on that trajectory. And again, in this day and age, a guy who stayed put and played his entire career for one team, it's very, very impressive. And when we get to that point and you start looking back, there will be people who say, I didn't think about Joey Votto as being that good. I never realized how good Joey Votto is. He's a great, great player who's having a great career, and in the midst of that great career is this year where he's evolved into a different type of hitter while still being an extremely effective on-base guy. Remember, he almost had home runs in 10 consecutive games missed by about an inch of having that happen. So something to keep an eye on as the season finishes out. And again, the Reds, they're somewhat of a afterthought anyway, but Joey, Joey Votto should never be an afterthought. As we record this, it is August 16th, I believe, 17th. The NHL training camps are going to begin in about a month, probably mid to late September. There's no official date yet, but it's it's coming soon. But the offseason for the NHL, the big work has been done. Free agency has come and gone. The draft has come and gone. Rosters are set. Things are in place to go to camp. And there's one question that remains unanswered. 
where's Jack Eichel going to play hockey this year? And if you think it's a simple answer, not in Buffalo, I'm not sure it is a simple answer. And it may not be in Buffalo, and it probably shouldn't be in Buffalo, and probably won't be in Buffalo. But here's the thing. Jack Eichel isn't just a guy that you could turn around and say, all right, we got to get rid of him. Camp's already next week. Let's make the move with Team X. Team X may not have the salary cap space to bring in his contract. Team X may not have the prospects that the Sabres most certainly will demand back. So what happens? How do you do it? Well, the Rangers fans have put up a billboard near KeyBank Arena. <laughs> I I thought it was pretty funny, the wording. Aren't trade requests a pain in the neck? You know, Jack Eichel's neck injury is request. There are a lot of people who think the Rangers are his ultimate destination. The problem, if you're the Sabres, is this. Do you want him to go somewhere where a team you're going to play a lot, huge media market where if he turns things around and becomes the superstar he was on the edge of being with the Sabres and wins a cup in New York, Ryan O'Reilly was tough to swallow for Sabre fans. Jack Eichel doing so, and doing so in New York, would be next level tough to swallow. The Sabres need to move him out of the time zone. The obvious answer to me has come and gone, and that was Vegas. When Vegas traded Marc-Andre Fleury to the Blackhawks for nothing, literally nothing, so they could clear salary cap space, I thought, well, there you go. They're going to do that. And I actually thought that one of Rochester's own might come back as part of the trade. Remember, former McQuaid standout Jack Dugan, who was a fifth-round pick a couple years ago by the Knights and led Providence to the Final Four as a freshman, led the nation in scoring his second year and didn't get a chance to play in the tournament because of COVID, had a great season last year in Henderson, the AHL team for Vegas. He's a viable candidate to be somebody that if you're going to trade with Vegas, you're going to want him back. You're going to want Jack Dugan as part of your trade if you give up something. And I don't want to say a homegrown player, because Buffalo and Rochester are very different. But if you were to make the trade with Vegas, I think the Sabres would want a guy like Jack Dugan to come back. And and, and I'm both optimistic that if that happened, it'd be good, and, and pessimistic it'd be good. I, I know this kid. I like this kid. I want him to succeed greatly. And I think if he's in the Vegas organization, he will. If he came to Buffalo, he'd probably get a better opportunity sooner just because of the lack of the depth of the organization and the need for talent that they don't have at the big club, whereas Vegas is loaded with talent. The problem with that potentially happening would be the culture that is the dumpster fire of the Sabres. Eichel moving out isn't going to change the culture of a franchise that's been mismanaged for the last 10 years by the same ownership group. It's not going to change that. I don't know where Eichel's going to play. I don't know 
how they're going to resolve this issue, but they better get on it, and they better figure it out fast. And here's the other part of it. If you're the Sabres, you absolutely can't just trade him because he doesn't want to play there. You have to, even if it amounts to him sitting out and you get nothing for him, you have to hold tough and demand a ton back in trade because you don't have a whole lot of pieces to begin with. He's one of your few assets that you have. So moving on from him, you better damn well get something back. And I can't think that Kevin Adams in his rookie year as the general manager of the Sabres is going to be patient enough to do that. I hope he is, but this is a question that needs to be answered. It needs to be answered quickly. It's another sign that the Sabres and the organization have no clue what they're doing because they've got an unhappy superstar and they haven't figured out how to remedy it and it's not even close to a situation that can be handled going into camp. Go figure. I'm criticizing the Sabres yet again. Next week, I am off, taking a little pre-NFL season siesta, and I will be back in two weeks to break down all of the latest news and get you ready for the start of the NFL season. Have a great couple weeks, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.